Next part is objective four, part three, and they are a total of six elements to this objective. 4.1, define the term deployment baseline. 4.2, state how deployment baselines differ between linear or waterfall projects and iterative, which are agile projects. 4.3, outline the stakeholders of a project management playing, uh, plan. 4.8, state typical estimating methods, including analytical, analogous, and parametric. 4.9, outline the purpose of the estimating funnel. 4.11, outline the purpose and benefits of project progress reporting. The project management plan, we'll look at that one next, otherwise known as the PMP. So let's see the definition first. The PMP is the output of the process of integrated planning for a project. So we're gonna look a little bit about what that means. I think to, to get to that definition, what we'll look at first is, well, what is in a PMP? And that might help us figure out what that definition from APM actually means. So an integrated project management plan or PMP captures the what of a project. What is it that the project is delivering? And we call that scope. How are we going to deliver the project? Which is our project approach? What methods are we going to use? What options have we chosen in order to deliver the benefits that are in the business case? When is it going to be delivered? And that's our schedule. So when are things going to happen? When are we going to approach milestones? When are they going to occur within the project? And of course, most importantly, what is the end date for the project? Who's going to be working on the project? Who's involved with it? And how much is it going to cost? In other words, the cost baseline or your budget is also in the PMP. So it is a number of disparate documents that all work together, that come together in one package, which we call the PMP. So in essence, the project documents what, what's the scope, how, how are we going to approach it, what, how is it that we're going to go about executing the project itself, who is doing what, who's responsible for what, when it's going to occur, where the work is going to be done, and very importantly, how good, which is quality. How good does this project need to be? How much can we go over our schedule? How much can we go over our budget? And also on the products that we're releasing. Is it going to be like a Rolex watch where it has to be very exacting? Or can it be more like a Casio where there's more leeway in there because you don't have the same sort of resources when it comes to money to create the watch? Those kind of things all go into the quality plan. So let's ask ourselves a few questions about the PMP. How does a PMP help a project? Well, firstly, it aligns the team and the stakeholders and gets their buy-in and sets the correct expectations. It enables progress to be monitored because you have a baseline, you have a schedule, you have a budget, and it allows you to enact change control because you have a baseline. So if you don't document in the PMP what it is you're doing and somebody wants to change it, well, if there's no documentation, it makes it almost impossible to manage that effectively. So it will define the scope, it will define the schedule, and it will define the budget so that when changes are requested, you have a baseline of which you can make those changes to. It provides a baseline for measuring the success of a project. What is the definition of good? and that will be found in the quality plan. And it serves as an informal contract between the project manager 
and the sponsor, as well as the steering group. The project manager agrees when they've signed off on the project management plan that they will run the project in the way that's specified within the PMP to that budget, to that schedule, to that level of quality. That is the contract. And the sponsor will sign off on that and says, I agree, that is what I want the project manager to do. The development baseline and the PMP are approved at each decision gate. The first one that it's approved at is in definition, but it is looked at continually all the way through the life cycle of the project and updates are made to it. Once it's approved in definition though, any changes to it are subject to change control. So all the way through the project post-definition, the PMP can be changed, but it would be subject to formalized change control. Let's look at stakeholders now, and there's a question for you here to answer. Consider the stakeholders of a PMP. How do each contribute towards its development and seek to use it? And there's a number of different options here, sponsors, project managers, team members, users, stakeholders, specialist staff, and resource managers. All of them work with, contribute to, and are guided by the PMP. So as an exercise, consider the stakeholders that you work with, how they contribute to a PMP, how they're affected by it, and how it guides them. Let's look next at deployment baseline, the term itself. So a deployment baseline is captured in the PMP. It's a component of it. Because remember, the PMP is not just one big document. It's a number of disparate documents, including the schedule and the budget. Uh, as well as quality, risks, and how we're going to manage risks and how we're managing our stakeholders and how we're producing our scope. So deployment baseline is a component of the PMP. And it's a record of the project's scope, it's a record of the project's quality, its resources, and its cost. So it's a baseline so that all the stakeholders have a common understanding of what resources are going to be used, when are those resources going to be used, what is the level of quality that we need to hit? And what is the scope? What is the project delivering? What is it that they're making? What is being handed over at the end to BAU? It's approved at the decision gate associated with the approval of significant cost to the project, which is often at the end of definition. Because after definition, the planning phase is completed and you go straight into deployment. And deployment is where real money gets spent. That is where you have to go in purchased large items, capital items. That is when your team gets a lot larger and they start filling out time cards and billing to the project. So before all that happens, it's good to have a control mechanism to review these deployment baselines to make sure there's a common understanding that they're all agreed before we go off and start working in earnest. Um, it represents the agreed starting point in a linear project lifecycle from which progress and change are measured. So as we've said before, in a linear or waterfall project, management technique, at the end of definition, the PMP is signed off, it becomes that contract between the project manager and the sponsor, and any changes to it are subject to change control. Looking further into the deployment baseline, what we're going to do here is we're going to differentiate between a linear or waterfall project management technique and an iterative or agile project management technique. So a deployment baseline in a linear or waterfall project management technique is signed off on at the end of definition. And as we've said before, any changes to it are subject to change control. 
So at the end of it, you have a specific level of quality, you have a specific schedule, a budget, and a scope. And those don't just get changed over emails or side conversations or elevator conversations. There has to be a process for changing any of those things. Iterative is surprisingly similar. You have a fixed team, you have a fixed budget, and you have a fixed amount of time in which to do things. The thing that can change, the area where you can be agile and make adjustments on the fly, if need be, is in scope. So within an agile or iterative project lifecycle, it is at the discretion of the sponsor, the project manager, and the team whether they can take scope out and add more scope in. So for example, if you're coming upon a deadline and you have a prototype that you have to demo to uh, a number of stakeholders, and that date does not move in an iterative life cycle. You keep that date where it is. There is no leeway in moving it. What you would move, though, if you were going to be late, is you would take scope out. That is how you would make the deadline. So instead of moving the date, you would simply remove scope. That also allows you to be agile in the marketplace. So if new technology becomes available, or a stakeholder comes up with an excellent idea that could make the product even better, you're allowed to implement that change of scope into the iterative life cycle, but keeping the cost and the team and the schedule the same. Let's look at estimating, and we're gonna consider what estimating is, what it's applied to, in which project situations are estimates produced, and how does estimating change throughout the project lifecycle as it works its way through the cone of uncertainty, which we'll go into in some detail. So what is an estimate? Well, an estimate is a prediction of future outcomes on time, cost, and effort. You'll often hear it called a guess. Sounds a little bit more analytical to say it's a prediction. It's what the team thinks will happen. It's for schedule, it's when we think the project will end. For budget, how much do we think the project will cost. So it is a look into the future and it is a huge component of being a project manager. We do a lot of estimating all the way through a project life cycle. So to answer the question, in which project situations are estimate produced? Well, as we've already seen, they're produced in the business case. We did have a high level estimate on time and cost there and some information about risks as well. They're done throughout scheduling during the definition phase. So when we have that deployment baseline on schedule, we estimate, we look at that in some degree of rigor to come up with a solid schedule baseline. Work packages and forecasts and change requests often go with estimating as well. So it isn't something that ends in definition phase all the way through deployment and every step of the way through the life cycle. You're constantly estimating, particularly if change requests come up, you need to estimate what that's going to do to the project schedule, what that might do to the project budget. And also, estimates become more and more accurate over time. And that is what is known as the cone of uncertainty. At the beginning, the project estimates are very, very high level. You might call them an order of magnitude. They're not very accurate. And that is because there isn't a lot of information available yet. Your team hasn't started working. You don't know how fast they work. You don't know specifically how much you need because you don't have a definitive definition of the scope of what it is that you're doing. But as information becomes available over time, 
those estimates will become more and more accurate. You will have a better understanding of what it is that you're making through scope. You'll have a better understanding of how quickly your resources can work and when you can get those resources. So those estimates get refined and more accurate as the project moves its way through its life cycle. So for estimating, let's review some of the estimating techniques that are available for a project manager. And we'll review the pros and cons of three of those. So one of them is analytical, which is bottom up. Well, the pro of analytical is it's very accurate. It's very complete because you can only do a bottom-up analytical estimate when you have a full work breakdown structure and you have completed work packages with all the activities identified. You then estimate against each activity and then add them all up. And that's where the bottom-up comes from. And it is considered the most accurate estimating technique for a project because you've taken the time to break everything down to the activity level. The con of, of, of the analytical approach is the amount of time it takes. It's not normally something that you could do in the beginning of concept because you don't know the full scope yet. You don't know how the project's levels of quality are going to be measured and what those quality success criteria are going to be. So this missing information makes it very, very difficult to do analytical. Once the project has gained momentum and if the project is allowed the time and the money, then it can be a very, very powerful tool. But the downside is it does take time, it does take resources in order to do it correctly. Analogous estimates, they're not very accurate is one of the, the cons. What you're doing is you're comparing one project to another or one piece of work to another and you're comparing it to something that has happened in the past. So you may have a project that's similar to another project, and now the former project costs $7 million. So you say, well, that project costs $7 million, so this project must cost $7 million as well. Let's do an analogous estimate and give the budget a $7 million. It's very fast. It's very easy to do, but there always is differences. There's always exceptions, and those exceptions can make the actual estimate very inaccurate. So it's good at the very beginning of a project when uncertainty is highest maybe at the very beginning of concept. But as you get more information, you may want to move away from analogous estimating and more into analytical. Parametric is when you use historic data, historical data about time and cost, things that have happened before in the past, and use a mathematical approach to try to calculate what those numbers could mean to a current project. So you'll need a knowledge base in order to do this. You'll need to know what things cost projects in the past, how long things took with projects in the past. And then you can use a mathematical calculation to try to extrapolate what does that mean for the current project. Now, the mathematical calculation itself can be very, very simple. It can be things like we know that it will take 10 days to lay one kilometer of highway. So if we have two kilometers, it's going to take us 20 days. It can be as simple as that, but it also can get into some very complex modeling and statistical analysis as well. So the pros is it can be very, very accurate because of the fact that there's historic data being used along with the mathematical equation. The cons, well, you need the data. Without the data, the parametric estimate doesn't exist. So you are reliant on an organization that has kept this data, that has taken the time and the energy and kept it updated. So some points to consider 
when you're estimating. It's good practice to list the assumptions that you've made when you've made a schedule. That way, stakeholders that look at it realize that you've captured them. So for example, in your schedule, you may say that an activity is going to start on December 12th, but it's based on the assumption that you will be getting resources on that date. That will allow resource management to know that those resources are needed in order to maintain the schedule. Exclusions and constraints are good things to capture as well. Um, that those things can be looked at and reviewed subsequently. So when you're improving and iteratively updating the schedule, you've captured those constraints or anything that you haven't included in the schedule yet that you plan to add later. Uh, using estimating techniques that are appropriate for the situation is also very good practice. As we've talked about before in the beginning with a project, you might use an analogous estimating because you don't have a lot of information or time available to come up with a very analytical detailed estimate. But as you move through the project lifecycle, more data will become available. You may be able to make a work breakdown structure with work packages, breaking those down into activities, and you can get a much more accurate analytical estimate later in the lifecycle of the project itself. Use historic data whenever you possibly can. A lot of organizations have a knowledge base that shows what things cost, and this will give you the should cost. So if you're purchasing items, what did the organization spend on those and how long did those take to actually procure? This information can be vital to feed as an input into schedule creation. Be aware of biases as you talk to your stakeholders, talk to your team members about how long things are going to take or how much things will cost. Realize sometimes people are optimistic and you're going to need to make allowances for that so that you are not late with the schedule. Allocate contingencies. So these are contingencies for risk. Should this risk occur, it won't just affect the budget, it will often affect the schedule as well. So articulate what will happen to the schedule ahead of time should a risk come to fruition and become an issue. And also realize that resources are not going to be productive 100% of the time. So if you say that this is going to take one day, and one day is 7.5 hours, you may want to take a little bit off of that and make it something like six hours. A rule of thumb is often minus 20% from a 7.5 hour day. This is, a lot, this is to allow the team members to do things like administrative tasks, emails, etc., as they won't in all likelihood be able to work on your project 100% exclusively for the entire day. Our resources who work on multiple projects, they're going to take time to go from one task to the other. So you may want to put in some contingency for that. Um, don't try to be too accurate far into the future as well. So if your project is a long project, two years, three year projects aren't unusual in today's day and age, don't try to be accurate for those last years because more information will become available and you'll be able to refine those estimates as that information comes in. Whenever you can, using decomposition, break things down into their simpler components. It's very hard to estimate something top-down that's a large piece of work. But if you can break that piece of work down into more manageable chunks, those chunks are easier to estimate, and then you aggregate or add up those estimates to get the full estimate for the large piece of work. And agree tolerances with your stakeholders. Tolerances are things like plus or minus. So if you say, a project is going to take 10 months to complete, plus or minus two months, that means that your stakeholders will expect the project to complete sometime between eight months and 12 months. That gives you leeway. 
because no projects ever finish on the exact day. That is nigh on impossible. But if there's a tolerance in there, for example, plus or minus 10%, that will allow the project manager to use management by exception and only escalate scheduling issues if tolerances are to be exceeded. Looking now at project reporting. So what's the purpose of project reporting? So reporting keeps stakeholders and the steering group informed about project decisions. And it gives them data in which to base future action on. So if stakeholders get a status report, and that status report is showing that the schedule is red, and there's some information about why the project is looking to go late, that will allow stakeholders to make informed decisions about corrective actions to take. Should they add more resources to your project in order to bring the schedule in line? Or is it okay that this project is late because other projects need those resources more than the current projects? Without this sort of data, without progress reports, senior management can't help you. They can't help you make and the key decisions required in order to take corrective actions. So the benefits of reporting themselves. So early identification of issues, early identification of risks. That way the stakeholders can plan accordingly. They won't be any surprises. And I've never met a stakeholder that likes surprises. This, by doing progress report, you're giving them the information ahead of time so that they can act and plan in a reasonable way and come up with the best possible corrective action the best possible outcomes. It'll give insight into how the project is, in, is performing. So over time, we can see if our estimates are accurate and if we're completing project tasks to the baselines that we had estimated in the beginning. It maintains visibility across all of your stakeholders. It can show exactly whether your project is on track or not. And it facilitates effective communications. When a status report goes out, Often there's a status report meeting that accompanies it. And of course, the main star of the show is the status report. So your stakeholders will review what is happening with your schedule, what is happening with your budget, what is happening with risks, how are you doing with scope, i.e. percentage complete of the work that needs to be done, how is testing going. All of these will be a catalyst to more discussion more corrective actions, more input that will help drive project objectives and give you a better chance of success. They also support lessons learned. So at the end of a project or at the end of a project phase, you can look at all the status reports over time, see at which moments the project might have been read, what corrective actions were taking to bring it in line, and which ones worked and which ones didn't. So you can repeat success and avoid failures for future project endeavors. And they uh, uh, allow for a very formal mechanism to allow for project managers to escalate. So if a risk becomes an issue and it's beyond the capacity of the project team to deal with, needs to be escalated or managed by exception. And that way the senior management team can look at that, formally address it, and bring the resources and the decisions to bear in order to take the appropriate corrective actions. Without a status report, it's very hard to escalate. It's very nebulous. But if the data is there, the facts are there, the report is there, then the senior management can handle the escalations and be as effective as possible towards working a successful resolution. What we'd like you to do next is look at project reporting and answer these questions. What is in a project report? What is management by exception? What is the definition of that word? 
and who produces project reports.